When I look at George Floyd, I look at I look at my dad. I look at my brothers. I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have black. I have a black father. I have a black brother. I have black friends. And I I look at that, and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life, but it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. Jerry, that was one of those cases where we were not allowed to see the witness, uh, but that answer looked like it really got to you. It it certainly did, Uh, just because of the the humanity of it. I mean, here was um, a a teenager uh, who had encountered on the street a stranger who was suffering. She didn't uh, know him. Um, All that she knew was his humanity that she saw, that he was defenseless, he was subdued by the police, and he was suffering, and he was suffering needlessly. And she had a human desire uh, to try to intervene, to stop the suffering, to try to save his life, and to see the kind of guilt and remorse and, and frankly, responsibility she felt almost a year after the fact was just touching and, uh, and moving. And it spoke to her humanity, and it was a rebuttal to the argument that she and the others were simply part of an unruly crowd. And, uh, and, and there was nothing unruly about him. It was a very human crowd. As you know, I described them as a bouquet of humanity for the diversity in all of them. But they were simply human beings who, for the most part, didn't know each other um, and who were simply responding to a human call in need uh, for help. And I thought it was a wonderful example of what it means to love your neighbor and a wonderful example of what it means to care and, and one that had uh, Officer Chauvin adopted uh, that that evening, uh, George Floyd would likely still be alive. And Steve, uh, Lisa Christensen, the alternate juror, said uh, that the most important witness was Dr. Tobin. Uh, you were watching uh, Jerry examine Dr. Tobin. Sometimes you have a, a better feel for how it's landing because you get to keep an eye on the jury. Uh, and she's talked specifically about Dr. Tobin mentioning the moment when the life went out of George Floyd's body. Uh, and she said... That was the single most important moment for her. It's such a powerful moment in court and from from a witness who, you know, has given his life to science and and really came forward in this case to be able to help Uh, just a desire to help and use science and medicine to do so. Um, And for someone as intelligent as Dr. Tobin is to be able to communicate with the jury to teach them to explain things in a way um, when he was uh, motioning, you know, touching his neck to see all of them doing the same thing. Uh, it, it was it was a powerful moment and describing the precise moment that uh, uh, that life left George Floyd. It was it was powerful. It was heartbreaking. Uh, there was another moment uh, that that juror said stood out to her and really bothered her, and that was when one of the defense witnesses, Barry Broad, who claims to be an expert in police tactics, talked about George Floyd uh, on the pavement resting comfortably. Let's take a look at that. Oh. What part of this is not compliant? So I see his arm position in the picture that's posted. Right. That, you know, a compliant person would have both their hands in the small of their back and just be resting comfortably versus like he's still moving around. Did you say resting comfortably or laying comfortably? Resting comfortably on the pavement. Yes. At this point in time when he's attempting to breathe by shoving his shoulder into the pavement. I was describing what the signs of a perfectly compliant person would be. So attempting to breathe while restrained is a being slightly non-compliant? No. No. Jerry, I want to go to you on this one because uh, Steve won't brag about it, I'm sure. But um, it's one of those moments where you don't know that word is coming. You don't know that phrase is coming. 
and it comes. And Jerry, you watched Steve jump on it, handle it, and it worked on the jury, according to this one juror interview, exactly the way it appeared to. No, I, absolutely. I thought it, it, it was the one exchange that was essentially the indictment, uh, the symbolic indictment of his entire testimony in terms of his credibility. Uh, that, that it displayed that level of, of, uh, of frankly, insensitivity. Yeah, it was, it, Lawrence, that was outrageous ahead, uh, testimony. I mean, the, the starting off with the premise that this wasn't a use of force, um, it really was... Uh, it really was outrageous it, because understand that that premise that this wasn't a use of force was, uh, you know, it's kind of a technical explanation, but it's that it's a restraint hold, not likely to produce pain. And how can you look at that? How can you look at what was happening and <clears throat> and make those words come out of your mouth that this wasn't likely to produce pain? Uh, and so just from the beginning, from his direct examination, uh, it, it certainly, I thought, was was outrageous testimony and you know the explanation of his testimony on cross certainly didn't get any better for and to all of the clergy that are gathered here first to the family of andrew brown jr Give all of the family of members a big hand. And certainly to all of you that gathered, Reverend Toon, who has officiated, and uh, all, as I said, the clergy among them, let me celebrate Reverend R.B. Holmes, who is here all the way from Tallahassee, Florida. He's a uh, Ben Crump's pastor and heads Tallahassee National Action Network. And uh, I find it necessary that I also recognize Reverend Trump, right, who's been doing such a great job. And the head of Youth in College Division of National Action Network, Minister Talik McMillan. And certainly we'll be hearing words of comfort from some of them, but I want you to know that uh, with us today is the sister of George Floyd, Bridget Floyd, that came to be with the family today. The brother of George Floyd, Terrence Floyd, has come to be with the family today. The mother of Eric Garner, Miss Gwen Carr, has come to be with the family today. They know the pain that these families, this family, will have to endure. And Attorney Crump has recognized some of the others, and we'll be hearing. Certainly, uh, I must salute all of the attorneys that are going to fight this fight. I, hear my, I thought y'all said that he was an attorney. He got a little preacher in him. And I know Bakari Sellers got it in his genes. His daddy was a great civil rights leader, Cleveland Sellers. And then, of course, Ben Crump, the attorney general of black America. And my friend and brother down through the years, for over a quarter of a century, we've struggled together. No one I respect more than Bishop William Barber. Let me say this at the outset before I even take the scripture. Let us, as we celebrate the life of Andrew Brown, Jr., let us not act like we're supposed to be here. Too often, we come to funerals of people that are unjustly brought to death and act like this is a natural occurrence. 
are going to celebrate him, but we are not going to excuse the fact that we shouldn't have to be here to do this. So don't confuse the celebration with the determination to get justice in this matter. This in Elizabeth City is disgraceful and shameful. And I, I, I heard one commentator, it's not good people that work with me always uh, talk about uh, Reverend Bartley's with me who has New Jersey land and they try not to let me listen to talk radio and when I landed we went on the side of the airport and I, the guy got on radio talk about I hope Al Sharpton don't come here and start nothing. Well y'all do justice <laughs> otherwise I'll be back over and over and over again. <laughs> The nerve of you, the audacity to take somebody's life, to rob children of their father, and you try to act like the issue is who came to help them rather than what you did to them. The issue is not why we came to town or how we came to town. The issue is why we came to town. So let me go to the book. Let me also thank the church for facilitating the family to have this funeral, and we're grateful to this church for that. In the book of St. Matthew, 16th chapter, started the first verse, it said the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. I want to use for thought and honor of Andrew Brown the sign of the times. Before we could get through one 24-hour cycle, after the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the lynching by knee of George Floyd. A policeman killed Andrew Brown Jr. A day that we were getting ready to go to the wake of Dante Wright. From Dante Wright to Andrew Brown to Breonna Taylor to Ahmed Arbery to Rashid Brooks, to George Floyd. All of this happening during the pandemic, all within a year. And you want to talk about everything other than what the times demand we talk about. I watched the other night the president make his first address to the joint session of Congress, and then I watched the rebuttal by the senator from South Carolina, seemed something awkward to me, where a white president talked about white supremacy, and a black senator said America is not racist, seemed a little strange to me. Now, everybody in America is not racist. But are you talking about whether the practice of America's racist or the people? Because the practice of America was built on racism. <laughs> it was against the law for us to read and write. 
It was against the law for us to marry. It was against the law for us to name our children after us. We were brought here to serve and never get paid. That's how the country was built. I rode through Elizabeth City and saw a wall where they had an institution that was founded in 1847, right here in Elizabeth City. In 1847, by law, we were chattel slaves in Elizabeth City. What do you mean America is not racist? America was started off racism. It has been blacks and whites like the black and white young folk that been marching for Andrew that made it go from racism to where it is today. This family don't hate nobody. This family is black and white. The question is, what you do on our side of town, you still don't do on the other side of town. Today, blacks are unemployed twice more than whites. Today, we get the worst education. Today, we get the worst health care. Today, we are the ones that can't get bank loans. Or today, we can't get business loans. We still have a racism in a systematic way in America. So as a preacher, Jesus tell me, don't talk about miracles up there. Talk about down here the signs of the time. We must deal with the inequality in the criminal justice system today. That's the sign of the times. There was a time we had to deal with the back of the bus, Rosa Parks, Dr. King. Dr. Abendant, they dealt with those times. There was a time we had to deal with public accommodation. The Freedom Riders dealt with those times. There was a time we had to deal with the right to vote. Jose Williams and John Lewis and them dealt with those times. But in these times, in these times, the challenge of these times is how we're going to deal with policing in America and restoring the right to vote. And if those of you that call yourself preachers can't preach to these times, then you need to sit down and shut up and let somebody stand up in Jesus' name and talk about the sign of the time. <laughs> I hear these folk talk about I don't agree with those young folks that's been protesting 12 days. I don't agree with all this marching, shopping, and them be doing. I don't agree with all of that. I have another strategy. Well, what is it? If protesting nonviolently don't lead to nothing, tell us what your strategy is. Tell us where you brought justice. If you scared, say you scared. If you scared to sit down and shut up and let some of us that are not scared stand up and tell what the signs of the times is, this must stop. Enough is enough. How many funerals do we have to have before we tell the Congress and the Senate that you've got to do something these times? We have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. This must happen in these times. Just like the Civil Rights Act of 64 was on time, the Voting Rights Act of 65 was on time. The Times called for a policing act. When you see 10 policemen, including a police chief, get on the stand and testify against a policeman in Minneapolis, Minnesota, do you know what time it is? Even the police are tired of making 
and excuses and covering up. It's time for the wrong police to pay the price like the wrong citizens. You've got to be subject to the law, whether you have on blue jeans or blue uniforms. What is right is right is right. Now, Khalil and Gerard, I come from New York. They got a place in New York. Over the next few months, I'm going to have y'all come up to New York. I'll show y'all. There's a place they call Times Square. And they got all the theaters and all the movies and all that in Times Square. But they got some folk out that set up little tables. And they do little games to beat the tourists out their money. Call it three-card Monte. I'm a preacher, but I know some of the street stuff, too. And three-card Monte is a shell game where they put a little rock or something under one of the cards, have three cards out there, and they play games with your eyes to guess which one of the cards the stone is under. And they'd be playing to get the shell game. And you be guessing this and no, it's this. And you guess this, no, it's this. And you guess this, no, it's this. And being that I'm from New York, and I was looking at what they was dealing with, with the Brown case. Y'all around here arguing about the county and the city and the DA. They playing a shell game. They got the lawyers and Khalil and Gerard going to see, come down here to see a tape, come down to get a tape, 20 seconds here, shell game. Oh, we'll give you the tape in 30 days. No, we're going to do it in 45, shell game. <laughs> Don't want to release the tape. It might prejudice the grand jury, but a grand jury is supposed to see the tape themselves, shell game. <laughs> Trying to make us guess, tape here, tape there, come now, come later. I know a con game when I see it. <laughs> Release the whole tape and let the folk see what happened to Andrew Brown.
his 88th birthday. I met him when I was 18. My father left when I was 10. James Brown became like a father to me. Best way I could celebrate his birthday is to stand with these two young brothers and these five children. But James Brown raised me saying that it's better that you stand on your feet than live on your knees. Today in Elizabeth City, we're going to get up off our knees. We're not going to let you play the shell game. You're going to release that tape. You're going to let the world know what you did to this brother. We're going to know who was involved and what police were involved. We don't know the difference between the county and the city. Y'all get in the room and decide who's going to handle this and you're going to handle this. But the shell game is over. We're going to Washington and get the federal government to look in and stop the shell game. It's time for you to stop playing with the lives of our people. The Justice Department needs to come in and stop the shell game. We're going to stand up. We're going to rise up. We're going to hold up. If God be for us, if God be for us, if God be for us, it's brought in the whole world against us. Thank you, and God bless you. Their 401c3 status in uh, the tax code, which means that their, their property is tax exempt. Now, the money that comes from property taxes it is what directly underwrites things in the public good, like schools, public secondary schools, um, trash removal, snow removal, um, thinking about Texas a month ago, the electrical grid. Um, so the basic infrastructure of cities comes from property taxes. So as Yale became not only one of the biggest landholder in New Haven, the biggest employer in New Haven through this knowledge economy of tech and science and property holdings, um, people began to see a direct correlation between the money that Yale was not paying in property taxes and its grand expansion and the struggling conditions of the city of New Haven. Because the city so, still has to pick up the trash on campus. That's right. And the campus still benefits from the infrastructure that the city provides. So when you look at this, look, colleges and universities are going to say, what about all of the benefits that we bring to the public commons, the public good? So, for example, you look at Princeton and you say they've got a bunch of patents. They've got amazing discoveries. They've got lots of things that the campus and the students and the faculty have helped discover in lots of different fields. So isn't that good? What's good for Princeton? Isn't that good for the township of Princeton? Well, for some, but not for others. And the great thing about this project is I was able to conduct over 100 interviews. And I focused on the stories of people who I say live in the shadows of the Ivy Tower. And so one example of those kinds of people are the residents of the historically black Witherspoon Jackson neighborhood that surrounds the campus of Princeton. In 2015, they began to realize that their property taxes of the homeowners was going up. And they wondered why, what was going on? And so they began to do some investigation and realized that because they were sitting next to Princeton buildings that were producing millions in royalties, but remained tax exempt, their taxes were going up and they were reaping no benefits from these discoveries and innovations that were being created on this campus. And so they um, filed a lawsuit and won millions of dollars because it became clear that, again, there was a direct correlation between the cost they were paying, the burden they were taking on in the city infrastructure and the money in property taxes that Princeton was not paying while reaping benefits from that very exemption and that financial shelter. One of the plaintiffs in that case was so disgusted that he called Princeton a hedge fund that conducts classes. So, uh, I mean, aren't there universities that do contribute beyond taxes, right? I mean, how, is there something that universities are doing besides the tax exempt status that makes such land ownership problematic for the communities that they're in? They're buying up properties and thereby they're setting the land values of these properties.
increase. And not only are property taxes of homeowners increasing, but landlords are retrofitting rental properties to meet the needs of students and faculty at the cost of single working class families. At the same time, um, they are engaging in healthcare work. They receive a tax exemption, the medical schools and the medical facilities receive a tax exemption because they're supposed to be providing indigent care. But what we're finding out in places like Yale New Haven Hospital and Johns Hopkins Hospital is that they're not being totally transparent about the kinds of indigent care they could provide. So they're focusing on profitable cancer research and plastic surgery, while at the same time, when they do serve these communities, when the neighborhood residents aren't able to fully pay, they're putting liens on homes and pursuing lawsuits against working class black and brown people, when in some cases, the lawsuits or the care they're offering probably could be covered by the indigent care mandate and the cost could be reduced. And then all of these economic development projects that are coming out of universities are protected by private and quasi-private university police forces that are engaging in acts of racial profiling when you have predominantly white universities in black and brown neighborhoods. And then on campuses, you have black and brown students who don't want to get understood as being a local having to wear the armor of university paraphernalia so they don't get profiled and mistreated. I spent months talking to a young Brandy Parker on the south side of Chicago who told me that as the University of Chicago's jurisdiction extended beyond the campus, almost all over the south side, in his Woodlawn neighborhood, he got stopped three or four times a week by the University of Chicago Police Department. Sometimes before the car even stopped, police officers jumped out with the with the standard mantra, where the drugs at, where the guns at. It's a young man who has never had been in the police system, endured this. So you can say, yeah, he didn't get shot, he didn't get beat up, but the trauma and the inconvenience and the feeling of always being under surveillance in a, a quasi-university republic with its own economic development and its own police force. Um, Senator Mary Washington in Baltimore, when Johns Hopkins was attempting to create its own private police force, she described it as being like putting a, a, a Vatican City in the middle of Baltimore. Um, because of the, the control that these universities have over these neighborhoods. We're having this conversation in the wake of what the verdict with George Floyd. And I'm, I'm wondering what kinds of measures do you think could trickle down from what police departments are looking at now and what campus police should be looking at? What's important here is to understand is that um, as, let's be honest, white parents send their children to these schools in these black and brown neighborhoods, they began to lobby university presidents to do something as their kids began to live in off-campus housing. So in cities across the country, universities have entered into memorandums, memorandums of understanding with city governments to give university police either jurisdiction over areas, targeted areas beyond the main campus, or either jurisdiction over the entire city. And so on top of that, if these are private university police, they are not subject to Freedom of Information Act policies. So they can police and not even talk about it. So these, again, are private security forces. And even when they are public university police, they police in ways that are governed by protecting the university interest. Now, we all know the biggest crimes on campus are, and primarily white crimes, are uh, sexual violence and substance abuse. They don't police that well. And it's not because on campus are, and primarily white crimes, are uh, sexual violence and substance abuse. They don't police that well, and it's not because of incompetence, it's because that's not the focus. Because to make continual announcements about the levels of sexual violence and substance on campuses, that would undermine the university brand. So that's not their intent. So they've turned outward in a way to protect the brand, to police and show that even though we are in a poor black and brown neighborhood, your children will be protected through a show of force. So some of the, some of the recommendations that we've seen in the broader sense can be applied and actually can come out of universities. The university could be a model for police reform and in some cases, police abolition. 
for defunding. So, for example, when I spoke to a Senator Washington in Baltimore, she pointed out that as we're talking about thinking about ways to shift um, services and resources from police, because we know that 80% of police stops um, don't require an armed confrontation. It's primarily uh, social services, um, domestic disputes, etc. Um, that we need to shift the, the money that has all been funneled into policing budgets towards social services that have been cut. So at a university where you have an institution of higher learning with a public health or medical school, where else can we start than to have at least a police officer paired with a public health professional or shifting the burden from policing to public health and community safety? University can be a model for defunding or police reform, police abolition activities. And community residents in these campuses have been calling for it for decades. Being one of the largest landowners in a town, I'm assuming, comes with some political power, especially if you are going to have a new real estate development project that hopes to bring new funds, new energy into an area. When the Columbia University a few years ago was pushing to build its West Harlem campus over a 16-acre area, both student and community journalists found that the university had put money into state agencies as a way to encourage them to use their eminent domain powers to identify certain properties in the area as blighted so the university could gain control. Uh, when this was discovered, a lower court judge uh, uh, described the university's efforts to use eminent domain as mere sophistry. But because of the, the leverage and the power of universities in, in, in governance, the higher court argued that, well, because a university offers a public good because it produces jobs and it can bring um, you know, investments to the area, that it is um, legal. That, you know, because of Kilo versus the city of New London in 2004, a year before Columbia began to expand, um, it was legal to say that um, eminent domain could be used not just for public use, bridges and tunnels and roads, but for a general public good that didn't even require public accessibility. And so a university could gain access to a whole neighborhood and develop, you know, uh, drugs and technological discoveries, even though there's no guarantee that once they do that, that it will come into a public market, right? So what's the what's the public good here, right? You still got to pay into it, even if it's discovered on a university campus with federal money that is free to the university. You can turn it to the private market. University can make millions. Is that a public good? Good question. What have you noticed during the pandemic? I mean, we've seen the statistics that enrollments are down at universities and colleges around the country. At the same time, we've seen some big sort of austerity measures being taken by colleges and universities. We've also seen like what qualifies as an essential versus an expendable worker on a labor force in campuses. Oh, what are the things that strike you about what's been happening this past year? Yeah, so, so most people don't even acknowledge that uh, because universities are, in many cases, the largest employer in um, our cities. Um, and we're not talking about faculty. We're talking about low-wage workers in the cafeteria and uh, maintaining the grounds, uh, support staff. And these are primarily black and brown women. Um, they Universities set, the, set the, the, the wage ceiling in many cities. So whatever they pay will determine what other industries have to pay in their cities. That's important to acknowledge. So during the pandemic, um, we uh, scholars and activists discovered that, for example, Harvard, which made money, made money um, in their wasp, in their uh, kind of financial coffers, their, in their investments during during the pandemic, and also received millions from the CARES Act. They're using the pandemic to claim austerity measures, which meant cutting jobs in these low wage areas, and so they um, did offer furlough with with, with wages for those who are directly employed by the university, up to three months. But those who are who are employed through a subcontractor, which is becoming a larger trend, that most universities are now working on contracts with subcontractors, so that even if you have a university union, those contracts don't apply to the subcontracted workers, which are becoming the majority. So at Harvard, the subcontracted workers didn't, cut, didn't get covered by the furlough agreements. But then when celebrity alums and the law school started pushing back on social media, it forced Harvard to include 
subcontracted workers under the furlough. You Chicago, they started to take their um, um, unused cafeteria food or excess, excess food and package it into meals for families of need during the pandemic. And they began to offer small loans to struggling small businesses, all great. But especially with the food issue, I asked, why isn't this the standard operating procedure? If you can do it during the pandemic, why can't we create an infrastructure where these institutions can take the food they're gonna throw away the next day and distribute it to communities of need? So you, you in the epilogue, you take us kind of in the opposite direction and show us that there are ways that we can reimagine a relationship between a university and the community it's in. Yes. So I anchor this discussion in what I saw at the University of Winnipeg. They built housing that was available to both university affiliates and residents at a range of financial levels from premium to a market rate to affordable rate to rate geared to income. They put in arrangements with the uh, student government to open up daycare slots for people that were in need that were living in these housing in this housing at a more affordable rate. Most universities use one of the food service multinationals like Marriott, Tedesco, um, or, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. What they did was they fired one of those multinationals and hired their own, created their own called Diversity Foods. At Diversity Foods, 65% of the employees come from marginalized communities, whether that be of color, uh, new Canadian, what we call immigrants, um, recently incarcerated, single mothers, people from LGBTQ communities, and they're beginning the process of creating uh, them and turning them into shareholders. So they will get shares from the profits. So my point here is that when people say to me, we have to be practical, um, you're just offering critique. Um, we, what, what, what can we do? What's your solutions? These are my solutions. And we don't have to go north of the border to think about the university-city relationship in a more just and equitable way. We just need to shift our vision from a profit-oriented university to a people-oriented university. That's all we have to do. And these solutions are right beneath our feet. The book is called In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. Demarion Baldwin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. And now, continuing our discussion on race, we turn to the American tax system. Our next guest, Dorothy A. Brown, is a law professor and nationally recognized scholar in tax policy. She chose this field because she believed that it was free of racism, but she soon discovered how wrong she'd been. Her new book draws on decades of research and anecdotes. It's called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Here she is explaining to our Michelle Martin just how it works against black people. This conversation is part of our ongoing initiative about poverty, jobs, and economic opportunity in America called Chasing the Dream. Thanks, Christiane. Professor Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Professor Brown, I was so looking forward to this conversation, but to be honest with you, dreading it at the same time because the more I read, the more infuriated I became. I have been aware of your work for years. It's very unique. You are one of the very few people kind of looking at the tax implications or the racial implications of the tax code. And the more I read, the more infuriated I got. And I just wondered, did you have that reaction when you were doing the research? Absolutely. And one of the goals in my book was for you to react exactly the way you did. So the research showed me that no matter what black Americans did when we engaged in the exact same behavior that white Americans did, tax policy advantaged white Americans and disadvantaged black Americans. So let's talk through it because one of the things, you know, walk me through it because one of the things that you point out in the book is that some government policies are intentionally discriminatory, at least they have been intentionally discriminatory, like federal housing administration, housing loans. I think, I hope by now, that most people, educated people, realize that this program was intentionally discriminatory against black people. That's where the term redlining comes from. But you're saying that's not true of tax policy. In fact, the IRS doesn't even gather information by race. So why do you say that it just it, it, it 
heavily advantages white people and heavily disadvantages black people. Other groups too, but black people in particular. Walk me through it. And why don't we start with the example that came from your parents when you started doing their taxes? Every year I did their taxes, something seemed off. They combined made about as much money as I did by myself. And they paid too much in taxes. And it was my gut feeling. Compared to how much I paid, they paid too much. And I could never figure out why. I just knew there was a problem. Well, when I read that report that said black wives contribute 40% on average to their household, it hit me. My parents paid too much in taxes because they were married to each other. The joint return did them in. And how did that happen? Well, one way to look at it is, as I put it, taxpayers bring their racial identities onto their 1040. So just because there's no box on your tax return that says race doesn't mean race isn't implicated because you, the taxpayer, have a race and you are operating in a society that has systemic racism. So how do we get the joint return? There's this couple, uh, Henry and Charlotte Seaborn. They were a rich white couple, stay-at-home spouse, and they were one of the few taxpayers that paid taxes. What? Before World War II, the only people who paid taxes were rich white Americans. Basically, that's, that's who paid taxes. And at this point, they paid taxes and they didn't like it and they used their wealth to hire an attorney and challenge the law that required every person to file individually. So what we know of as the joint return didn't really exist back then. But they wanted to split their income if the sole wage earner could have half of it taxed to his wife, that unit would pay less in taxes. They couldn't do it under the law, but then they sued and went all the way up to the Supreme Court and they won. So because of the Seaborns, we have there are other, but to make it simple, because of them, we got Congress in 1948 creating the joint tax return. So why does that disadvantage black people so profoundly and advantage white people so profoundly? I think it's important to say both. Why, why is that? So what the progressive tax system does is let's take a household with $100,000 of income. If the wage earner makes $100,000, his last dollar of taxes is going to be taxed much higher, his last dollar of income is going to be subject to taxes much higher than his first dollar. In fact, when you earn $100,000, your tax bill is higher than if you earned $50,000. So what the joint return does is in effect, allow the $100,000 household to be taxed like it only has $50,000. That's just a rough approximation. But it, it gives you a tax cut when you get married because the stay-at-home spouse has no taxable income. Well, married Black couples need two incomes in order to get to $100,000. Because with African-Americans, it's more likely that both parties will work, right? Exactly. And it's also more likely that both parties' incomes will be about equal. Exactly. And instead of being able to spread their income to a non-earning spouse, their income, in effect, is stacked on top of the other spouse, and they don't get a tax cut. The law was changed in 1969 such that not only did married Black couples not get a tax cut the way single wage earner white couples did, but their taxes actually increased and they paid a marriage penalty as a result of the tax cut. So the Seaborn still got a tax cut, but my parents, the Browns, wound up paying higher taxes. You know what gets me about this is that for decades now, conservatives have been haranguing Black people around marriage, right? 
mostly white conservatives, but also some black conservatives, haranguing black people about their marriage rates, saying, oh, well, see, if you would only get married and do things the right way, then you would prosper. It's your behavior. And what you're saying is that even when you do things the right way, you actually are penalized for it under the tax code. That's absolutely right, because Black Americans cannot do marriage the way white Americans can. Like, we can't do home ownership the way white Americans can. Well, talk to me about home ownership. Tell me about that. Like, why is that another example where the tax code disadvantages some people and advantages others? Because I think, again, you know, buy a house, you know, be a citizen, you know, get your pennies together, get your coins together, buy a house, be stable. So I want to talk about just the tax subsidies for home ownership. So there are two that, so everybody knows about the mortgage interest deduction, but I want to focus on two other provisions. One that, that occur when you sell your home. So if you're married and you sell your home for gain, up to half a million dollars of that gain can be received tax-free. But when you sell your home for a loss, there is no tax break associated with the loss. So you say, that eh, that shouldn't matter because home ownership is the same whether you're black or white, and it is not. In fact, where is the most appreciation in homes? It is found in all white neighborhoods or almost all white neighborhoods. Where do most black homeowners live? in racially diverse neighborhoods or all black neighborhoods. So black homeowners are one, less likely to sell their home for a gain because the market doesn't value their homes the way the market values homes in all white communities. As bad as that is, it gets worse when we look at losses. Black homeowners are more likely than white homeowners to sell their homes for a loss that is non-deductible. So we get black homeowners more likely to have a loss, no tax break. White homeowners more likely to have a gain and a large gain, tax-free income. And why is that though? Because I think some people would hear that go, oh, well, maybe it's because there's more crime in an African-American neighborhood, or maybe there's there are fewer amenities, that it isn't race, it's something else. What do you say to that? It's exactly race, and there's research that proves this. So first of all, white Americans prefer living in neighborhoods with very few black Americans. That's number one. And what I often hear is the pushback is, well, Dorothy, it's not that they are that many virulent racists. It's that white Americans are worried about their property values. And my response is, but it's the preferences of white homeowners that are damaging the production of black wealth in their homes. And as a black homeowner, I don't really care whether you're a virulent racist or you act like one, right? I am harmed by that. So that's the first point. The second point is research shows, and this is really interesting research, videos were done where they showed white and black people neighborhoods. It was the exact same neighborhood. The only difference were the actors hired to be in the video. There was the all-white video, there was the all-black video, and there was a 60% white, 40% black video. White viewers picked the white neighborhood over all the others. There was no crime. There was no bad school. It was the identical neighborhood. Whereas black homeowners, black viewers, hit the racially diverse or the all-black neighborhood. Their least favorite neighborhood was the all-white So white Americans who live in these virtually all-white, no-black um, neighborhoods like to think of themselves as progressive and, oh, stuff happens. But when they're given pictures of a neighborhood with identical social amenities, they somehow are more comfortable with the all-white But what about college, for example? That's another thing that, you know, African-Americans are constantly sort of, it's, it's look, let's just, just, let's just say it, are constantly sort of treated as if they don't value higher education. But when they pursue higher education, does it have the same value? How does the tax code see that? And is there a racial difference there? 
There absolutely is. And the first point is the 60% of Black Americans who start college do not complete it. A lot of it because we self-finance our college educations. We, Black Americans, are more likely to graduate, and when we do graduate or when we drop out, have higher debt loads than white college students. So what does our tax law do with respect to debt? Well, student loan debt, very limited deduction. Only $2,500 of interest can be deducted. But if you look at average debt loads, that means white Americans with lower debt loads can basically write off all of their student loan interest. Black Americans in the early years cannot because their debt loads are so high, it's their interest on the debt is higher than $2,500. So we talked about how the tax code penalizes black marriage and black home ownership. In the book, you also talk about how it penalizes black college graduates and the role that intergenerational wealth plays in that. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? Yes, because once black Americans take their debt-laden degrees into the labor market, they face racism in the labor market as well. So even if a black American is lucky enough to get a job, uh, with an employer that provides retirement accounts, they are less likely to benefit. They're less likely to participate in the retirement account. Why? Because they're sending money to their parents or their siblings, or they're seeing that somebody's light bill gets paid. So their, their money cannot stretch as far. So they can't participate in their retirement account the way their white peer can. And even if they do, they're more likely to be forced to take an early withdrawal, which comes with high tax consequences because there's some family emergency. So even when Black Americans take that degree and get a better paying job, they're disadvantaged because their parents suffer from Jim Crow and their siblings didn't have the same opportunities. You criticize both the political right and the political left for how they address these issues. Now, the political right, you know, you can see, well, Republicans who sort of, or conservatives who sort of imply that black people are lazy or that they don't value education. Okay, we've, we've heard that. But why do you criticize the political left on this point as well? You say they aren't doing their part either. Why is that? Because the political left likes to talk about historical race discrimination. They like to talk about the FHA redlining. They like to talk about how other white people discriminated, but not them. I want to talk about how they are discriminating against black people today when they live in all white neighborhoods, right? So white, the, the left, the political left ignores the systemic racism they benefit from today and the behavior they engage in today. So that's my beef with the left. What would fairness look like? Because as you point out in the, in the book, you can't, you can't put a box on your tax returns to say, okay, I've been overpaying all these years, so give me my, give me some of that back. That that would likely be unconstitutional. So what would fairness look like going forward? So one of the things I advocate for is a wealth tax credit. Since I can't compensate Black Americans for the higher taxes because the Supreme Court won't let me, I can compensate or decide to use tax credits for anyone with below in a household with below median wealth. That's going to disproportionately benefit Black Americans because of the racial wealth gap. But it's also going to benefit White Americans. It's going to benefit Latinx Americans. It's going to benefit Asian Americans, Native Americans. It's going to benefit every household with below median wealth. And there does seem to be some momentum for talking about that. So that would be one step towards fairness. Of course, the other step, which is the big tax reform uh, proposal that I make in the book, is let's get rid of these deductions and exclusions that benefit white Americans. Let's just tax income from labor the way we tax income from uh, stock, like the Reagan Tax Reform Act of 1986 did. Let's only have a living allowance deduction. So depending on where you live, would determine how much you needed to thrive. 
we're not talking minimum wage, because in a lot of areas, minimum wage will not help you survive, much less thrive. We get this living allowance level. If you make less than that, you get a refund. If you make more than that, then you pay tax at the progressive tax. Truly, honestly, reading this, I mean, I can't deny that you and I are similarly situated. I mean, look, look, let's just look at us. I mean, we're similarly situated. I, you know, college educated, married, African-American person, married to a wage-owning African-American man. I had two married African-American parents who did their best. And you just, it's, it's overwhelming. I wanted Black Americans to understand they weren't doing anything wrong. That notwithstanding the message that maybe they were doing something wrong, they weren't. That the system is designed for white wealth, not black wealth. So until we fix that, then we need to be defensive players in the system, but we need to give ourselves a break and say, we're doing the best we can. We're managing to scratch out something in a system that designed for us. I'm gonna pat myself on the back. So for me, what was important is for black Americans to have the tools to understand the system isn't designed for us and we didn't do anything wrong. Dorothy Brown, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me.